I want you to do something for me. I want you to picture the one thing that you feel is holding you back. What is it? Can you see it in front of you? Can you visualize it as a tangible object? Is it a person or the idea of a person? Is it yourself? What do you think you could accomplish if you let that one thing go? Challenging my listeners with that line of questioning is how I started the 179th episode of my business podcast back in 2017. It was the first time I dipped my toe into talking about the topic that makes me most uncomfortable, my weight. As I mentioned in episode one, I worked backwards to house that conversation inside of a business topic. In this case, it was video. I told myself and my audience that it was all about breaking down barriers that might be holding you back in your career, like I felt video was for me. But if I look back at that episode, I think honestly, I wanted to let go of the shame about my body that I was harboring, that was holding me back. If you know me, then you know that I often say I have a love-hate relationship with video. I love it because it's personal and engaging, and most of all, for entrepreneurs, it's effective. People see you, they connect with you, you convert, you profit. I hate video because it's not just looking at myself. It's asking others to look at me, dress me, direct me, cut me up into clips and rearrange me, spend hours watching how my mouth moves and how my shirt falls across my stomach so that in their minds, they can fix it. In a lot of ways, it feels like giving other people the power to do to me what I've become so good at doing to myself, hyper fixating on my appearance so that they can correct it. What if they can't make me look better? Or even worse, what if they can? I was scared of what people would think of me, their business guide, stepping away from the tactical and practical and diving into the abstract of my feelings toward my body. I thought I might face scrutiny and pushback from that one podcast episode. I did actually, though they were outweighed by the many more messages of support and kinship that I received. Did it work? Yes and no. I mean, of course, recording one episode of a podcast wasn't enough to clear away the years of piled up feelings I've held in my heart, but it did leave me here. And that's something. I'm Amy Porterfield, and you're listening to Talking Body. A topic that unites all of us in our daily lives and haunts many of our nights is work. After all, everyone works, right? Whether you're a full-time worker, a full-time parent, or both at once, as Bob Dylan famously sang, you're going to have to serve somebody. I don't know about you, but for me, my ambition to succeed in my work is bound tightly with my feelings about my appearance. I hated video because I was embarrassed about my weight, but the issue is so much bigger than just my personal discomfort. Somewhere along the way, I conflated my professional and personal success 
with my self-worth. As if to say that I am not worthy unless I am successful. And I am not successful unless I am thin. We can all be plagued by this nagging sense that we have to do more, be more, improve our worth to our company or our coworkers, our managers, to show that we deserve recognition. The thing about this is when we tie those things together, it becomes a vicious cycle. For example, I find worthiness in the fact that I am so busy. If I'm working hard or hustling, if you will, then I know I am earning my success. But that means that on the bad days, even when I'm working and cranking out new ideas and podcasts and posts, if I'm not finding those specific markers of my success, if I'm not working overtime or feeling the stress, I find that it's much harder to feel successful. The same pattern holds true for my relationship with my body. I can have a wildly successful launch or get great feedback on a project, but if right after that I struggle to button up my jeans or I catch an unflattering angle of my face in a mirror, doesn't matter. That's a bad day. It's also strange to acknowledge the arbitrary values I assign to my weight. In the last episode, Dr. Diedrichs talked about weight bias, or the subconscious ideas we all carry in regards to our or other people's weight. I have a number in my head that represents the ideal Amy, and not just in looks. The Amy that weighs that amount is driven and powerful and charismatic and successful. I also have another number in my head, a dread number. If my weight hits that number, then that means that I'm lazy or weak or I am not worthy of my success. When working on the script, the producer made a comment. She said, if you're comfortable sharing numbers, you can add those here. Never in my life would I share the numbers on the scale. Never, ever, ever. That's how deep this goes for me. The thing is, I know in my mind that I've never been lazy or undisciplined. I know that a number on a scale cannot magically transform the person I am inside. So the thing I'm learning to grapple with now is connecting what I know to be true with what I feel in my heart. The thing about women in the workplace is that from the moment we were allowed to work in the same place as men, the rules for us were different. There have been many studies in recent years examining appearance bias, sometimes referred to with the awkward moniker lookism in the workplace. In 2016, a joint study by the University of Chicago and UC Irvine found that there was a beauty wage gap with more attractive people out earning their less attractive counterparts. The real kicker? Grooming accounted for the entire so-called premium for women, while it only accounted for half of the premium for men. Want me to put that into simple terms? Both men and women benefited financially from being perceived as attractive, but for women, that perception had 100% to do with how much they worked to cultivate beauty in their appearance. 
It speaks to a long-held belief that beauty is every bit as important to a woman's success as her skill level, and thus it merits putting in equal or more work. Consider these comments Shira Tarrant, an expert in gender justice issues, made to rewire in 2018 on the concept of the eccentric genius. If a male faculty walks in with mismatched socks and forgets to tuck his shirt in, the assumption is that he is so brilliant that he forgot to match his socks, she said. If a female does the same thing, the assumption is not brilliance. It is that she is a little bit weird and owns a lot of cats and is single. Weight bias can also be seen in hiring and employment, no matter how much grooming a woman takes on. In a 2020 study, researchers had a group of thin and average-sized undercover assistants apply for retail positions, and then had half of them apply again wearing obesity prothesis, which is a fancy way of saying a fat suit. The study found that applicants who appeared obese were subjected to discrimination from the hiring managers that they had not experienced as their thin selves. Things like standing further away from the applicant, smiling less, and cutting off interactions. These biases can show up in even more insidious ways for women of color. Stereotypes that plague black and brown women in their personal lives often manifest in how they're perceived at work, the angry Black woman or the hot-headed Latina. To compensate for this, many women of color feel that they have to assimilate to white standards of beauty in order to avoid being confined to these boxes. In 2010, Chastity Jones was offered a position at a company called Catastrophe Management Solutions, an offer that was rescinded when Jones refused to stop wearing her natural hair and locks. The hairstyle, according to the company, was against their grooming policy. Chastity Jones fought the company for eight years, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Her and her supporters asserted that catastrophe revoking the offer based on nothing but her hairstyle, one that is common in the Black community, constitutes racial discrimination. They say it's just one of many ways, big and small, that corporate America tells people of color that their culture is not welcome or somehow inferior to their white peers. Ultimately, the Supreme Court declined to hear Chastity's case on the grounds that locks were not an immutable trait, meaning that because she could change her hairstyle, she could not be discriminated against because of it. Many Black activists disagreed. How we present ourselves in order to gain the respect of our colleagues has shaped so many women's mindsets for decades. Here's what some of our friends and neighbors had to say. Yeah, I do think women probably have a harder time breaking into certain business roles based on their, based on, I don't know if you'd call it personality or sort of gender role that they play. Oh, I absolutely think women have a more difficult time um, breaking into certain industries because of femininity or being women. Uh, I worked in the tech and startup industry for a while, and I was always one of very few women, especially um, more feminine women in that world. And I think it's it's very cut off um, still to this day from women. 
you know, recently I dyed my hair pink right before I started a new job. Um, and there was a lot of, there was a lot of moments where, I mean, I literally Googled is pink hair unprofessional, um, even though it's so silly because the color of my hair isn't at all reflective of the quality of work that I can do. And so, and I don't think it should be taken into account, but I think that there's a lot of sort of old school systems in place and it's not exclusive to hair. I think it goes for tattoos, for piercings. If you are a woman and you dress more um, like masculine, I think that there are certain judgments put on you, but it's definitely stuff that I've sort of pushed myself to dress in a way I don't want to or don't feel comfortable with um, in order to feel like I'm blending in with my coworkers. In working in agency environments was much more um, you know, female dominated in terms of who, who was working at the office. And the, um, and I've worked in an office that was the majority men. And the, but the thing that I found funny about that is that there were some men working in that agency, but they, didn't have to, you know, and I, and I say that with sort of inverted commas in terms of like what we consider to be our expectation. They didn't have to play the game to be a, to be involved, to be in the club. They didn't have to wear a different, they could wear the, a, the button, same button down shirt and fresh new pair of Vans every day and it wouldn't matter. But if I came to work wearing an outfit that I'd worn, worn twice before, then I would feel and whether it was projection or whether it was real, I would not feel comfortable. I would feel like I was being looked down upon. And in the environment that was much more um, men than women, you know, sometimes they would come to work with like coffee and toothpaste on their t-shirt and no one cared at all. <laughs> and I would have, have like tried to make an effort with an outfit or something or, or, or put on a full face and come into work. And then I would feel again, like I stuck out for a different reason. I spoke with Kara Lowenthal, a former lawyer focusing on women's advocacy, who first started her coaching business with the women who were closest to her. So I actually started out coaching lawyers, but um, I was always still like trying to do other things on the side because like the lawyers weren't completely holding it. Eventually, Kara left the practice altogether to start Unfuck Your Brain, a program designed to help others break through the social conditioning that's holding them back. Here she is again. The first thing I saw, actually, which I still don't feel like anybody is really doing the way that I did it, and I would like somebody to come, like, take up that mantle, the way that um, law school and legal pedagogy fuck up your brain, which, like, still is a huge problem. And I actually, the biggest drama for me in some ways in switching my, like, expanding my work from just, I had been working with women lawyers to, like, all, kind of all women, um, was that I was like, this is so important, and, like, I don't somebody needs to do this. And I'm, you know, it sort of felt like I was leaving that behind a little bit. Um, it's law school basically uh, operates like the Marines. Like you come in and they very on purpose are like, we're going to mentally break you down and like teach you how to think in a completely different way and like divorce you from your values and your ethics because you have to learn how to think in the specific way to become a member of the specific profession where you have to be able to do these things. And it like completely ruins people's mental health and, and sort of, that, and they're like, so we've also added a meditation seminar, which is like not going to solve <laughs> the problem. Like you need to have coaching and cognitive training and like all this stuff happening from the very beginning to help protect people. So I think that was the first thing I saw. And it was like seeing how as I started to work through my own crazy, I was like, 
wait a minute. Like, yeah, some of this is just me, but like, I I just spent a lot of money being taught that I was supposed to think like this. Like, being right. like all the like, I am supposed to always think about the worst case outcome and like worry about it as a lawyer. That's my job. And now I'm seeing that that makes me crazy and miserable as a person. And so, and it was like that. So I sort of, that was, I think the first gap I saw. And then once I started working with women lawyers and then I kept wanting to like, I would do dating coaching on the side and body image and all this other stuff. And I just started to see like, oh, it's like, yes, there are lawyer specific thought patterns, but really there's this even bigger problem, which is just women's anxiety and self criticism and insecurity. Like there's all these patterns happening in the way women are thinking and that's when sort of the like my feminist theory history and my coaching all kind of came together into the work I do now. Uh, and it's such important work. Now, from one female entrepreneur to another, what are some ways that you've seen body policing manifest in our sphere? Oh, Jesus. I mean, <laughs> talk to <laughs> like, me about this. Like, It's like being like, how is there water around a fish? Like where, <laughs> where do so you start? So here's what's crazy. I I, if you ask me this question, I don't know if I could really intelligently answer it in my own experiences. And I've always been a bigger girl. I think I might be totally ignorant to it. Like it, you know how we talked earlier about like, um, what did you call it? Social conditioning? Yeah. I think this is at its best for me. So identify some stuff and I need to see if I can yeah. see it. Well, I mean, there's, I'm friends with weight loss coaches, which is also kind of amazing to me now, like given, you know, that is a testament to coaching. Um, but there's, I mean, so, <laughs> where to start? So there's like diet culture, right? Which is um, the idea, I mean, it's a lot of things, but like basically the idea um, that being thin is healthy, being fat is unhealthy, uh, that body size is determined by individual actions, which people can control and should control, that uh, it's more kind of virtuous or better to be thin. And it is sort of more, um, you know, people wouldn't, most people wouldn't say like being fat is immoral, but like that's the underlying thing, sort of like, like, you know, weak and lazy and worse character and, you know, being thin is beautiful, being fat is ugly. Like diet culture is basically just a it's like a glorification of thinness and an association of thinness with positive attributes and fatness with negative attributes. And then with the additional layer of um, saying like, but it's okay that we have this inequality because it's totally self-controllable. And so if you are fat, you're choosing that and you could choose to act differently and become thin, right? So it's like this, it's like if we were just gonna say, well, thin people are all things good and fat people are all things bad, we might start to be like, well, that seems kind of unfair or unequal, right, right? right? Like that doesn't seem very nice. But but the way that the ideology like saves itself from that internally is by making thinness something that everyone could just have if they tried hard enough, right? So that's mm -hmm. like the whole ideology, I think, of diet culture. And then, you know, coaching and wellness and these industries are very heavily invested in diet culture, which is, and are very heavily invested in white supremacy. Like it's a lot of like, thin, naturally, genetically thin, white, young, blonde women telling everybody else how to eat and how to exercise. And with the implication, that's like, if you follow my meal plan, you will look like me, right? Even though if you go to the dog park, you're not like, I bet if that Great Dane followed that Pomeranian's meal plan, they would look <laughs> the same, 
right? Oh, like, man. <laughs> yes, it's such a great way to say it. Right? If you look at a bunch of dogs, they all look very different. It's very clear that like, sure, a little bit of it may be lifestyle, like what are their owners feeding them, how much they run around the dog park, but a lot of it is clearly just genetics. That's what, right? And like, right. that's it. They've been bred to be a certain way. This is what they look like. Um, but with humans, we act like we can all kind of diet our way into being, you know, all the same body size and shape. Um, so I, and I think that the coaching industry, like so much of coaching is weight loss coaching. That's one of the things that people get coached on all the time and seek out for coaching. And, you know, partially because I think like the medical community and the diet industry has failed them because diets don't work. And so, um, you know, this is my perspective is not the same as a lot of coaches perspective, but um, I take a what's called a health at any size approach, which is a body of science that actually basically disproves all of the assumptions of diet culture and kind of thin, um, thinness worship. And so which is that like weight is determined by a huge number of factors, a few of which may be somewhat under your control, many of which are, you know, what was the pollution like where you grow, grew up and how did that impact your endocrinological system? What are the epigenetics? Which means like literally like if your grandmother endured trauma, then that impacted the cells in her ovaries that turned into your mother that turned into you. Wow. Like what was your mother's health during pregnancy? Like what is your what are your genetics? What are, like so many things go into a body shape, shape and size and, and healthfulness, quote unquote, other than follow my 500 calorie meal plan and like do this workout my celebrity trainer came up with. <laughs> right. So for sure. Okay. So when you talk about body policing, I go back to social conditioning and critical self-talk because I was talking to Rachel Hollis on her podcast about this podcast, talking body. And I confided in her and told her that I've always had this belief that I would be more successful in my business mm -hmm. if I were thin. And I would make millions of dollars and think, yeah, but what would have really happened if I wasn't overweight doing these webinars or if I didn't look so big on camera? And then it got deeper for me, like, but there's something wrong with me because I'm an emotional eater and that's something I've dealt with my entire life. I'm happy I eat, I'm stressed I eat, I'm scared I eat. And so I look at that as being less than and having an, I have a problem. So then it just gets deeper and deeper, but it still comes down to if I were thinner, I'd be more successful. And this is really effed up because I'm really successful. So right. I still have this thought. Right. Cause we're taught that being thin is how you get anything good in the world. Yes. And by the way, like your association, you're like, well, I was larger because of emotional eating, but there's plenty of thin people who emotionally eat also. Right? I don't even think that way. You make a but great, great hundred percent true. There are plenty of thin people who emotionally eat also, right? So I'm not saying that like the amount and type of food that you put in your body has no impact on your health and weight, but it is not. These are, I think, some of the kind of simplified lies that some of the coaching and wellness industry sells us, which is like, like, this is like the kind of what's the right word? It's like the softer diet culture is like, oh no, I don't care what size you are. I'm helping with you with your emotional eating because your emotional eating is what's causing your weight. But like plenty of thin people emotionally eat too. And there are fat people who don't emotionally eat. Like none of this, you know, the entire weight loss industry and diet industry and medical industry has not been able to come up with a standardizable, like consistent 
replicable way for people to lose weight and keep it off. So it's possible that it's like not quite as simple as just teaching someone about emotional eating. But I totally, I mean, I have this thought about being a coach too, that I like who would hire a fat weight, a fat life coach. Like she obviously can't, you know, like get her own life together. Like I was, I have a whole podcast episode called, um, what is it called? It's like internalized bias and a non-internalized bias. Anyway, it has a fat phobia and diet culture in it. But one of the stories I tell is that, not just about me, but this is how screwed up this culture is. I used to follow this meditation teacher who is a like brilliant meditation teacher who's in a larger body. And my thought about her was, I mean, she obviously can't be that good at it because if you were like a really good meditator, then you wouldn't be fat because you would, you know, have solved your emotional eating problem or whatever it is, right? Yes. That's what diet culture teaches you to think, which is crazy pants. Like that is so ridiculous. (laughs) And so I had those same thoughts, but I mean, and I, my listeners have heard me say this all the time. Like I, I now understand that the thing that you think is your biggest liability is also usually your biggest advantage if you embrace it. Right. So I think I've been so successful because I'm not like a skinny, tall, blonde coach, right? Because I'm not, and I just, I'm just, I was hesitating because I just taught this on a webinar. And then this is how crazy diet culture is that a bunch of my students who are skinny blondes were like, are you saying there's something wrong with our bodies? I was like, no, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with your body. I think of that. I think of that when we use them as an example. Uh, So what do you say to that then? I'm like, no, nobody said that. That's your own brain, right? And it's not, you know, it, this is, it's just like pointing out white privilege. It doesn't mean that white people don't also emotionally suffer, but it means that if you're, get, you're getting benefits from society based on how you look, that you don't necessarily, you haven't done something to deserve. That's all. It doesn't mean that you're yes. not like a human who experiences human suffering. And of course, I don't think anybody should be ashamed of their body. Right. Um, but my point is just that I think the, I've had many people say to me kind of like, oh, well, when I saw you seemed really confident and I was like, well, it's basically, I mean, people say it nicer than this, but it's basically like, if she can be confident in my like nightmare body, then she must know something, right? It's like, so true. Okay. Talk to me about this. What are some of the unique struggles that you see women face in the workplace? Oh Lord. Well, certainly, I mean, diet culture stuff comes up there too, right? Men are yep. just like roll out of bed, put on a suit and all of a sudden they look like the commander of the world. And then women are supposed to like be a certain size, or, you know, be a certain size, have a certain look to be considered professional. There's all sorts of racist implications, right? Black women's natural hair is considered quote unquote, like unprofessional and they have to, you know, conform to looking a certain way. So there's a whole appearance element of it also. But then I think this is a place that like socialization comes up all the time, right? So studies show that men will apply to a job if they meet between like 40 to 60% of the listed qualifications and women in general will not apply to a job unless they meet a hundred percent of the qualifications. Mm. Right. Women internalize that they are like underqualified, unqualified, not good enough. And so they're always looking for and finding more evidence of that. Whereas men are generally socialized to think that like what they think is worth sharing and everyone wants to hear. Right. Right. And it's like (laughs) genius for the world. Right. I like I have one of my favorite memes in the world is is about um, it's sort of about academia. But to me, it's also about gender because it's like a woman academic in the 20th century saying like, here's my meticulously researched PhD that explores one small angle of this little question and I hope it may meet with your approval. And then it's like 17th century dude in a bath writing like, here are self-evident laws of nature that came to me while I was in a bath. There is no disputing them. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, like- <laughs> it kills me. It kills me, but I get it. I, 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 I see some of my uh, male counterparts in the internet marketing world and I see how they show up and it is so incredibly different than how I do. And they're very relaxed about it. Nothing phases them. They spew out their ideas. They're in, they're out, they're gone. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I did like 20 hours of research for this. And, and I'm really genuinely not knocking them. I'm just saying there is in many cases, a very big difference. Yeah, women generally, yes, they like over-prepare, they undervalue themselves. I was just coaching someone in a live event who's a, like, even when it comes to things that seem just explicit, like I've, I've coached enough women lawyers, for instance, to know that they will tell me that they like can't bill enough hours and they can't get ahead, like how can they blah, blah, and then I'm always like, are you actually billing for all the time you spent or are you billing only two-thirds of it because you tell yourself that you took too long and that thing shouldn't have taken too long and blah, 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 and they're always like, Yes. How did you know? And I'm like, the dude down the hall is not doing that. If it takes him three hours to research it, he puts in all three hours. He doesn't say to himself, well, it's because I'm stupid and slow. It should only have taken two hours, so I'll put in two hours. Right? Women just internalize all of this socialization. And then, you know, it's complicated because everybody's internalized it, including the people in charge of promoting you or reviewing you or whatever else. And so I'm um, I'm not a coach who teaches that, like, uh, you know, obviously that like social oppression is made up or like doesn't exist or we're like making it up with our minds. It's out there, right? The question is just like, how can we best respond to it? How can we undo the impacts that it's had on us so that we can show up for ourselves? So I think all of that kind of socialization of imposter syndrome and insecurity, all that stuff comes up in women's professional lives. Yeah, know, every day. for sure. I'm going to give you, I'm going to ask you a really specific question. And that okay. is, do you think women need to dress in a certain way in order to be taken seriously in the professional world? I think it depends on who we're talking about taking them seriously. We are often trying to control other people taking us seriously when we are not taking ourselves seriously. Whoa, that's okay. Talk to me about that. That's right? powerful. You just totally twisted that one. And I like where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> That's what coaches do. You give us right? a question, we turn it inside out. Um, a lot of the career advice that women get is about trying to manage what other people think of them, right? And try to control what other people think of them. And that's presented as being like necessary because of sexism and misogyny. And I agree that sexism and misogyny exists. And I do not think that the best way to use all of your mental energy ever is trying to control what other people think, which you can't control. So I think if you show, like there's no such thing as an outfit that is going to transform someone who shows up with an unmanaged mind, feeling very emotionally reactive, defensive and insecure and not good enough about themselves and believing all their stories about their boss and trying to control what their boss thinks and trying to people please. Like there's no outfit that takes that package and turns it into cool, calm confidence, right? right? And there's no, um, and like, so, and con- yeah, it's just like, I don't think that is, do I think some people sometimes have thoughts about how women dress in the office? Of course. Do I think that is the biggest determinant of what's going on? Not by a long shot. Right. And I have, you know, so much experience in my own life and with all of my clients that when you learn how to, you know, what coach, what we, what the coaching language of like manage your mind really just means like when you learn how to be confident in yourself, not be emotionally reactive to what's happening, like have that separation between the way you decide to think and approach a situation and kind of your initial reaction when you learn how to truly believe in yourself and 
have your own back, which means like no matter what happens, not being mean to yourself, not criticizing. Like when you get that emotional house in order, it just turns out that a lot of the stuff you thought mattered so much really doesn't matter that much. Mm, So true. Thinking about what Kara said about how women dress at work versus how they project to their peers, I figured we ought to examine some other high-profile women whose appearances became the focus of their personal narratives over their abilities and skills. Let's go back to 1995, when almost everyone in America was talking about the same thing, the O.J. Simpson trial. In case you weren't old enough to take part in the conversation or maybe you weren't born yet, geez, that's something to think about. O.J. Simpson was a then-beloved actor and athlete accused of a horrific crime, the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, as well as a young man named Ron Goldman. The trial was covered daily by the news, who breathlessly reported on every assertion from the prosecution, led by Marsha Clark, and every dramatic rebuttal from O.J.'s defense. Inevitably, some of that media circus moved on from Marsha's expertise in the courtroom to her personal life. Her hair, skin, makeup, clothing, weight, facial expressions. No detail was too small to scrutinize. Marsha was savvy enough to know that the fixation on her appearance wasn't just annoying, it was a liability. Determined to secure a conviction for the man she was convinced had stabbed two people to death in cold blood, she was willing to play the game. She conferred with jury consultants on how to cultivate the most acceptable image, and they encouraged her to speak softly, wear pastels and muted colors, and find a way to smooth out the hard edges of her image. To that end, She visited a hairstylist and asked for a softer cut with curls. In a 2016 interview with New York Magazine, Marcia stated the cut was meant to be low maintenance because she was working long hours with two young children at home. Regardless, Marcia Clark was mocked by tabloids and major newspapers alike for the look, calling her frumpy and unprofessional, until she finally began straightening her hair halfway through proceedings. Thanks in no small part to actor Sarah Paulson's award-winning performance as Clark in the miniseries about the trial, American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, Marsha's story has experienced a critical review in recent years. It came at a time when the media is atoning for many of its sins against women, from the treatment of college-age Monica Lewinsky as a sexual punchline to the ruin of multiple women's careers at the hands of Hollywood heavyweights like Harvey Weinstein and Roger Ailes. And yet, while we can recognize the unfairness of individual women's treatment, we keep refusing to acknowledge the discrimination we often unknowingly support in our own professional spaces because doing so would mean turning the lens inward and admitting that the unkind things we tell ourselves about our bodies might be bleeding into the way we perceive and treat others. Hey there, Nicole. Oh wait, time out. (laughs) Don't make me laugh. I know, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to. Okay. Okay. Hey there, Nicole. Thanks so much for being on the show. 
I am so happy to be here, Amy. Thanks for having me. It, this is going to be a great conversation, but before we get into all the details, tell my listeners a little bit about you. Sure. Of course. My name is Nicole Walters and I am a teacher, a coach, a mom, a wife. I help everyday entrepreneurs apply corporate strategies to their business so they can have wild success. And I'm also uh, the lead of a show on USA Network called She's the Boss. Which is incredibly exciting. <laughs> I'm so excited for your show. Thank so you. here's the deal. Tell me this. I really admire you in how you do business. So you use your platform to help women grow their business and build financial independence, but you combine these lessons with real issues women face, like setting boundaries or conquering doubt. So was that always the intention to, to look at business through the lens of the personal? Absolutely, because the two can't be separate. So when I worked for years in corporate America, that was actually the thing that was missing. I worked in insurance, which I mean, couldn't be more personal and more family focused. I mean, these are really big health issues that people are dealing with every day, but I was forced to treat people like they were numbers and pieces of paper. And that was something that I knew I wanted to leave behind when I started helping everyday people build their own businesses. They needed to be able to bring the heart and the soul to the work that they we're doing every single day. Uh, well, you do it well, my friend. Thank you. Now, on one of your pod podcast episodes, you talk about struggling to ask for help. And I feel like that's a sentiment that I've heard a lot of my fellow women entrepreneurs express, that there's this real fear of exposing any kind of weakness because we feel like we're already working so hard to prove that we have the knowledge and have the skill set mm -hmm. to deliver. So can you talk more about that and why you think it's particularly hard for women in the professional world to ask for help. I, I honestly think that it's twofold. There's one, our own internal. So we're saying to ourselves, we want to prove that we can do this and that we aren't needy and that we aren't uh, desiring tons of support in order to be successful, that we have it within ourselves to be able to make it happen. So I think that there's maybe a little bit of pride with it and a little bit of uh, trust issues where it's like, you know, I don't want to see that control. I want to be responsible for my own results. And then I think there's the external factor. We're really used to doing doing it by ourselves because who's coming to save us? You know, when you're a right. woman out in the corporate world and you are raising your hand to do a presentation, it's rare to get someone who's going to be like, oh yeah, you're definitely right, Susan. You nailed it. You're brilliant. That doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, we're not used to it. At the best, we might get a guy who's like, I want to piggyback off that and repeat exactly yes. what she said and act like I invented it. You know, so I mean, <laughs> oh, God. this is the reality. And so I think that all of that lens itself to, you know, eventually developing a uh, do it by myself perspective. And uh, sometimes that's to our own detriment. Oh, so very true. I totally get that. Now, do you think the entrepreneurial world treats women differently than it treats men? How has that experience especially been for you as a woman of color? Yeah, so it uh, it's absolutely different for both of us. Um, I think that what's interesting is I don't really feel a personal connection to it where I'm saying one is better than the other. It definitely is different and it's about how you want to pursue it. So with men, I personally feel like they can kind of get away with a little bit more of the uh, visual credibility. So if I take a photo in front of a Lamborghini, if I, you know, show myself with lots of fancy things, if I, yes. um, you know, am tall and loud and, you know, pointing and things like that, you know, that's a 
enough, you know? And for women, I honestly feel like, you know, if I'm not taking a photo showing myself with a, um, you know, frying pan, a baby on my hip and glitter tossing in my, in my bathroom, <laughs> you know, that's all white with Louis Vuitton bags everywhere, then I'm not successful. You know what I mean? So it's just, oh, and I Terrible. also have to be skinny with perfect hair. So it's like, right. you know, all of those things I think are very different, but the advantage is that whenever you break out of that mold, I found that you always find your people. So um, yeah, men are, and women are treated very differently. And then also as a woman of color, you know, we, um, you know, the biggest difference is that we just can't find ourselves often on the same platforms. It's just really hard to find examples that look like you receiving the same accolades and visibility as everyone else. Right. Let's, mm-hmm. let's just put it out there that we're, that's going to change. Mm-hmm. We're, sure. Let's Absolutely. make those strides. It's changing. So, so it yeah, is changing. changing. Exactly. Let's mm-hmm. yes. So tell me this. Well, actually, before I even get to my next question, yeah. at the time of this recording, you just posted something on social media that we need to talk about. Okay. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's it, for those of you who go follow Nicole on social media, she's at Nicole Walters. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of her in this gorgeous, tight fitting, beautiful white dress. Oh, yeah. And there's another picture beside it where <laughs> she is lifting up her shirt, showing you the rolls on her back. Okay. Yeah. So first of of all, I loved you already, but when I saw this, I'm like, okay, I don't know what she's going to say, but I already love her, but I want to read a little bit about this and I want you to talk about it. Sure. So you said, guess who's gotten a bit of the pandemic plush in the past few months. Don't let the pop knee arched back and angled camera fool you. My Spanx is working overtime and I'm appreciating the zoom calls and waste up keynote summits very much in this snacking season. Listen, I have always been someone who prioritizes my heart health, mental well-being and how my body helps me live well over appearance, but I know how social media is. I never want to make it seem like I'm over here being a snack while I'm actually over here eating one or several. I can't with you. Okay. You said, y'all, I love this body, soft, cushy with fudge created back fat. Why? Because it's the one I have right now. And it's helping me survive a tough season where nothing is as it should be. And everything is a challenge complicated by once in a lifetime pandemic things. Fortunately, light exercise, choosing more plants than not, and skipping sugary drinks is the easy way to turn things around when the time comes. But until then, if I'm going to need a donut to get through, I'm going to have me a donut. Okay. And I'm going to grant myself grace in this process. We're doing the best we can with what we've got. Right, friend? With the extra helping of guac and chips, you should grant yourself an extra helping of grace too. Deal? I mean, come on. So talk to me about this because when you said, listen, I love my body no matter what, Mm -hmm. how did you get there? It took a while. I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I grew up thinking I was overweight my whole life. And part of that is no one's fault. It's literally just, we've learned so much about bodies. We didn't have the technological know-how back then where we thought that our weight was determined by our height and gender, you know, and age, you yes. know, and, and right. you're all the same. So, I mean, here I am thinking I needed to be 135 pounds, you know, when once I got older and I did a, um, 
a separate assessment, I found out that my skeletal structure of my bones weighs 127 pounds. So, okay, so. I, so I mean, literally, I would actually be skin and bones, actually, yes. if I was 135 pounds. So, I mean, here, and when I look back on my pictures of my youth, I'm like, my God, I would kill for that body. You know what I mean? I was just, right, me you too. Know? So, I mean, it's just one of those things that um, it, it was a journey, you know, it was realizing that you know, your body is a functional tool, you know, it's something to help me get from A to B. And so yes, I'm responsible for maintaining it and taking good care of it, so that it's able to do that work. But that is it, it doesn't have to be a showpiece. It's like a house, you know, my house needs to fit my family, and I need to maintain the roof and make sure my plumbing works. But at the end of the day, how I decorate it and what it looks like is entirely up to me. And if someone else doesn't like it, they just aren't invited in. Okay. I love that analogy. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have lost weight over the years. So uh -huh. a question I ask on this podcast a lot, and I want to hear it from you is, can you love your body? Can you fully accept it and still want to change it? Yes. And I will tell a, a little story for the first time here that I, I don't even think I've told you, Amy, that no one knows um, about why I started that weight loss journey. So, oh. uh, and, and you know, all these people, so that, which I think is part of what'll make this uh, interesting and fun for you. So okay. <laughs> I was at a convert kit summit with like Nathan Barry and, you know, those folks love him. and yeah, love him in um, Idaho, you know, black girl in Idaho, like what am I even doing? Right. So like, <laughs> you know, like I get on the plane and on the flight over, I'm actually sitting next to Brian Moran, CEO of Samcart. And um, at this point, I'm only, I'm flying in first class. These are like the little details. I'm flying in first class because uh, coach class seats were too uncomfortable for me at my size. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of being grateful that I had the funds to do it because my business was successful, but also because it was a long flight to Boise and I didn't, my hips didn't fit well in the other seat. So, I, I mean, that. these are real modifications to my life that I was making to accommodate a body that that, you know, just didn't fit in our world, you know, so yes, you know, flying over and then, you know, when I land, I find out that, you know, Idaho is a very walkable city. So it's like, <laughs> you know, you're not paying for a lift to go anywhere because their downtown is like, you know, six city blocks. So at this conference, everything is like, you know, sprinkled around the city, and you have to walk everywhere. Well, fast forward, what happened was I kept finding myself avoiding going to different activities. So if something was like a block or two away, I wasn't doing it because I knew by the time I arrive, I'd be out of breath and sweaty. And I was like, my weight and my body is actually preventing me from doing the thing that's very natural to me, which is being social and being extroverted and interacting. And from a business standpoint, it was preventing me from growing my business and networking and being around the people that I like, because I simply yes. didn't want to walk three blocks and be out of breath. And it all culminated at the end of that weekend when I got on stage and I have a very high energy keynote and and I was running up on stage and you can actually, anyone right now could literally go online and watch this on YouTube. It's on the ConvertKit site. You can see that keynote and it's embarrassing to call it out, but it's true because it was a turning point for my life. But the first few seconds of that, or not seconds, probably like five minutes of that keynote, I'm trying to catch my breath like actually mm. could not breathe, was like really out of breath. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm a little panicky because can people tell like, what are they thinking of me right now? Like, I'm so out of breath. I can't even start. And being a little nervous, like, will I ever catch my breath? <laughs> like, will I ever be able right. to do the keynote? And it was then that when I got off stage, I um, was chatting with Seth Godin, who uh, told me that he swims every day. And for some reason, it finally clicked because 
how many times have we heard from different entrepreneurs who are like skinny and blonde and gorgeous? Oh yeah, I work out every day. It just gives me joy and I just love it and blah, 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 you know, and you're, and it's just, it's part of my routine. (laughs) And you want to, you want to hate them, but then you're like, oh my gosh, they're working out and I'm judging them. Yes. Well, exactly. And I'm always dismissing it because I'm like, well, that's because of who you are and what you look like. It's not for me. Right. And so, and, and I'm like always dismissive of it, but then it finally dawned on me no this has nothing to do with like who they are and who that person is here's Seth Godin who is the opposite of the skinny blonde yes you know, litter talk. he doesn't even have hair he doesn't even have hair you know what I mean this is a regular you know older guy and he's here and he's like no I swim every day and I finally asked him why and he said because I have to stay healthy for the work that I do Ooh. and it was like a it was a gut punch and a light bulb all at one time when I realized people are paying in this audience the same rate for a ticket for skinny me or or chunky me, right? And they don't mind which one they get, but I want to make sure because of my own personal integrity that they're getting my very best. And I knew that I wasn't showing up at my very best health-wise for them. So, I mean, I got rich while chunky, you know, and I'm able to, you know, continue to build my business while thin. People accept me either way. It's about what I want to deliver to them. Okay. I love that you just said it's about what you want to deliver to them Mm -hmm. because one of the things I've admitted in this podcast, and I told Rachel when we were on her podcast about this topic is that I have this thought in the back of my head that I would be more successful in my business. If I wasn't overweight, people would trust me more. They wouldn't think I had a problem with not being able to control my appetite or whatever my emotions. And so But at the same time, I am very successful and I still feel this way. But what I love is bringing people like you on who've done the work and you don't feel that way. You just said, I could be successful uh, bigger or smaller. It's what I choose. Absolutely. And the the truth of it is, I mean, most of us got successful while we weren't heavy, which means that people were attracted, our people were attracted to not that, you know, they were attracted to something else. So for me to discount, you know, or minimize my my success based on my appearance would really be doing a disservice. Now, uh, will I say that, you know, it, it's frustrating as a woman, the fact that I lost weight was absolutely uh, something that people really wanted to be a focal point. They really wanted to talk about it. And um, the reason why I've actually chosen not to make that a major platform, like you're one of the few people where I'm even, you know, discussing that is uh, Oprah mentioned that it was one of the biggest regrets she had of her career was doing her number one, t- you know, show episode where oh, she yeah brought out the wagon of fat, you know, and and everyone remembers it, you know, and she's like, you know, I, ever since that moment, it was like inviting my weight and my appearance to become national conversation. So I I just have decided not to do that, you know, but I have posted, you know, going back to that Instagram post, I have posted before and afters, you know, to say like, I'm really proud of this part of the journey. And I've, I've stopped doing that because it's, you know, more stable now, if you will, it's not like something I'm actively working on, but um, you know, it was why I actually posted my reverse before and after, because I felt like that wasn't honest and an integrity. Like I can't, just show you how I'm losing the weight. Let me show you how I'm gaining it too. And also let you know, I'm proud of this as well. This weight gain shows that I love myself and I'm taking good care of myself by, by wrapping myself with an internal warmth layer while I'm hibernating during this pandemic. So <laughs> I mean, I just love how you feel about it. And all that matters is what you think and what you feel about it. And you feel great about it. And it was very clear in that Instagram post. So I, and I love that you shared that story. I think that story is a perfect example that 
you can love yourself, you can accept yourself, but still want to improve. And we had Dr. Diedrichs on, and she is an expert in body image and body acceptance. And she said, you just got to ask yourself, why do you want to change? Yes. And that yes, reason good. matters. Yes. That's so and good. So, yeah. I definitely have found that like, at least in the pandemic, you know, I'll have my sort of seasons where I'm like, man, I got to get back on that Peloton more, or let me use these kettlebells and exercise does make me feel good. So, I mean, there's value there, but I also don't want to match that with feeling guilty that I had an extra scoop of ice cream late at night because I've got pandemic insomnia, you know, one of the nights, you know, it's, it's a different circumstance and I have to meet my love of my body with a different energy and, I have to recognize that my body is doing what I need in this moment. Just like when I'm at my peak fitness and my peak health, my body is doing what it needs in that moment to help me travel and to help me get on stage. And these are all important fluctuations that are required. Like I had, Amy, I don't know if you saw in the comments, there were moms who were in there who were like, you know, I am pregnant with my third baby and I'm gaining more weight than I did last time. And I'm just so mad at myself. And I'm like, girl, your body is creating human life. Like, are you kidding me right now? like make it cushy you know what I mean you're about to take a nap for 10 months you know (laughs) and it's the and it comes back to that grace you Mm -hmm. mentioned the word grace and Mm -hmm. I'm going to give myself grace you said and I feel like we all could so it was just a great message so first of all thanks for sharing that was just amazing and I'm so glad we got to talk about it okay so I've got a question for you about body policing and what we've seen for women is that we have to navigate the body policing often in the professional world. And can you talk about this a little bit? Cause when I first asked you on the show, I said, like, can you talk about like what it's like to be you in the workplace? And have you had these issues with body policing or feeling like you need to change yourself or fit in? So talk to me about that. Yeah. So it's a real thing. And what's interesting. And I don't think that we hear this perspective a lot. My body policing has less to do with my shirt being too low cut or my skirt being too high, which I think are things that women uniformly deal with, but actually more issues as a woman of color. So as a woman of color, I naturally have a curvier body, right? So I've got, you know, the Beyonce hips and the, you know, bigger butt and all those things. And I love these things. My husband loves them more, you know, but but (laughs) nevertheless, in the workplace, when I wear things that may be uh, worn by, you know, my lighter, brighter counterparts, you know, it may, it fits me a little bit differently or things may appear to be more um, visible than others. And it's a line of thinking that I don't think people realize that I really am wearing what I have available to me to wear, you know, and that my body just wears it differently. And so the policing has always kind of come in that respect where I found myself in corporate America um, and even on stage at events, you know, wearing more A-line dresses that are looser around the bottom so I could cover up my hips and my butt because I didn't want to appear too overly um, sexualized by wearing something Uh. fitted, you know, just because of the shape of my body, not necessarily the size of my body. So even if I was a size, at one point I was a size 20, and now I would call myself, I would say an enthusiastic 10. Like I have desires to be a 10. You know what I mean? I'm a solid 12. I love the word before. Enthusiastic 10. Enthusiastic 10. So as a solid 12, you know, um, it's a huge difference, but make no mistake, the hips and the butt, you know, haven't gone anywhere, you know, because that's just my body. And, um, you know, and I find myself depending on 
where I'm going to be and what platform. I'm not thinking so much about, is it low cut? I'm thinking, what percentage of this is spandex? Because I need some of it just so it'll <laughs> fit. You know? But I right. also don't want to have too much because then am I being too showy with my body? You know, so oh, yeah. it's a different issue when you're a woman of color, but it definitely is um, very similar in the sense of, you know, people policing and saying that doesn't look right. Cover up a little bit, you know? I'm so glad you brought the the angle of the woman of color and how you deal with it differently. That's an important conversation. So I, I appreciate you talking about that. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about these girls because you have three yeah. beautiful adopted daughters Dude. and you have been raising them for a, a while now. So mm -hmm. I want to talk about body image with them yes. because what do you hope to instill in them for their future as women in the public and private sphere? Mm -hmm. So um, having three daughters is something else, right? Because they all have their individual personalities. And a lot of that is being reinforced by what society does. So knowing that I've grown up with um, not so much insecurities, I was okay with, I was always okay with what I had, but definitely comparison, feeling like, where do I need, where does this stack up in the world? I just don't want my girls to have that. So, you know, and especially as women of color, we have our own separate issues that I don't know if people talk about often, but like there's colorism issues. So being fair skinned is considered, um, you know, quote unquote, better than being dark skinned, you know, um, and that is seen as like a separate set of issues. Having looser texture curls or straighter hair is considered better than having tighter texture curls or straight and all of this harks back to you know early slavery days Jim Crow where you know if you were browner than a paper bag you know that would actually minimize your job opportunities and it would you mm. know affect your income you know and things like that so um, and also going all the way back to slavery you know if you were fairer skin you were more likely to work in the house and have an opportunity to have better meals and better um, um, access and proximity to care. So because of these, you know, deeply in, in, wait, because of these deeply ingrained ideals from the Black community as well, you know, I just have to be very, um, careful about what my daughters are exposed to and what's reinforced with them. So, um, yes. you know, with my girls, I, I, it's, it really is giving an attitude of, oh yeah, your hair doesn't make you, you know, like you're amazing as a person, you're a hard worker, you're smart, you're capable, you literally can do whatever. So I had the other day on a live broadcast, you know, one of my viewers was like, how could you let your daughter be on um, camera with her hair looking like that in the comments and oh. talking about my nine-year-old, right? And her hair was Whoa. a hot mess. Like it was just hair everywhere, whatever, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, it looked like it was on fire, you know? But, but <laughs> I was okay with it, you know? And so I didn't even address her, but I made a point, you know, to take a note. And I went and I was like, hey, I just want to let you know your hair looks awesome today. And she was like, mm -hmm. and my daughter looks at me and she's like, yeah, it's a little frizzy. And I was like, yeah, but frizzes are cool. You look like an awesome lion. And she's like, yeah, I do. And then goes about her oh. life. You know? oh. so, and it's so important. It's so important. You know, my uh. 18 year old, I know is going to get criticism when the TV show comes out because she's chosen to shave her head. So that was something. And why she, did she choose that? She chose to do it because um, doing her hair took too long and it made her arms tired. That is a amen, sister. <laughs> I mean, first quote. of all, she looks gorgeous. She looks gorgeous. Oh, she's stunning. Right? I mean, she can wear it. She looks really, really good. Like it's, but her. I love that she's confident 
to shave her head. Oh like, yeah, which is wild, right? Oh, it's right. wild. So I told her I was like, I want right, to be mom. you when I grow up. Like, me too. Me you too. know? Yeah, it's a thing. Yes. But she, I mean, she shaved her head, and um, you know, I mean, as you know, like she battled cancer last year. You know, stage four right. cancer, and uh. so she'd cut her hair before that so I mean when we would come in for treatments people would say oh and she's totally fine now because I know their mom's listening who are like oh my gosh she's totally thank fine god. now in total remission thank god but she um when she would go in for treatments people would say oh where are you on treatment this was before she'd even started and she was like nope shave my head by choice <laughs> shave my head by choice <laughs> and like people will ask now they'll say like is she okay is she sick and she's uh. like no it's a style choice like I I like having my hair short it looks good on me I it shows off my jawline and my features and so she she's not caught up in all this stuff and I just reinforce it I'm like you're the coolest kid ever people wish they had your confidence you're amazing I wish I wish I did yes Mm -hmm. I'm glad you tell her that regularly for sure okay so tell me this final question what is some actionable advice you'd offer listeners who might be struggling with their own body image and I ask you this because I really do think you've done work in this area on yourself you have a really strong sense of who you are and confidence and love in your body. So what kind of advice would you give someone like me who struggles with this? So I think the biggest piece of advice that anyone could take from this is that it's truly a journey, like anything else in your, that you do in your life. Unfortunately, we treat our bodies as if there are milestone markers of success. So if I'm not this, then I must be failing. If I'm not at this, I'm working towards this point. And if I don't get to this point, then I must be failing. But life is all the stuff that's in between that. And in between that, you deserve to love yourself and your body as well. So recognize that, you know, this is a journey and things are going to be highs and lows. Like I could easily be 300 pounds in 10 years. And am I going to hate myself because I get there? Absolutely not, because it's still the body I have and I'm still going to need it. And if I was able to make it the version that I need it to be at a certain time, then that's the version that I can get it back to. So whatever you're doing, wherever you are, grant yourself and your body some grace because it's the only one you've got. Amen to that. Thank you so very much, Nicole, for being on the show. This is truly a treat. It was my joy. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. You know, thinking about what Nicole said about why she decided to go on her own personal weight loss journey, the story of feeling uncomfortable and not showing up for herself at that specific event, I can really relate to that. When I asked the question, can we respect and love and accept our bodies and still want to change it? One thing I'm learning is to really examine the why. And for Nicole, she wanted to change her physical body because her physical body wasn't allowing her to do the things that she genuinely wanted to do. She was out of breath walking to all of these meetups at this live event. And also she was in her head knowing that she wasn't showing up as her best self, which was holding her back as well. So when I think about, is my weight holding me back physically And energetically, emotionally, those are some things I want to explore. If I want to lose weight, I want to explore those areas. And so I'm going to do just that. And so I'm going to do just that. Most of us, whether we are entrepreneurs working for ourselves or leaders in the corporate sphere or just starting out at the beginning of their career path, are always, always in a mindset of improvement. That can be a really good thing. 
It can push you to take personal responsibility rather than pushing off mistakes on others. It can help you reframe failure so it's an opportunity rather than a setback. It can also trap you inside this maze of comparison. If your goal is to always improve, then isn't it fundamentally unachievable? It's like you wrote down an impossible math problem and then assigned your worth as a person to solving it. You, listener, are not a problem to solve. I am not free of these ideologies. I have put my perceived value of myself, my relationships, my business, my family over the value of my actual self. I have sacrificed my well-being, my mindset, and my health in pursuit of some perfect reflection of myself that simply does not exist. And trust me, as someone whose business has evolved more and more to involve my personal image as a load-bearing support of its everyday operations, I understand the urge to pick apart and dissect until my sense of self is beyond my personal recognition. But I want to be done with it. If sharing this podcast with you is a ritual, then let's all take part in that ritual now. This is what we promise to ourselves and to each other. We are inherently whole, no matter what. And we are worthy, not because of what we do, but because we exist. That's all we have to do, you and I, to be worthy of respect and love and dignity. Just be. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche, Celia Ties, and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% chance production. 